That's David Harvey, and this is Alternative Radio. I'm David Barsamian. This edition of AR features David Harvey on the state finance nexus. The contemporary capitalist economic system has an extraordinary component to it. That is, the connection between the government and the financial sector, the big banks. What banks are we talking about? The big five are J.P. Morgan Chase, Bank of America, Wells Fargo, Goldman Sachs, and Citigroup. Their assets are in the trillions of dollars. The economic and political implications of capital resources of that magnitude are enormous. Regulations have been relaxed, creating the way for another financial meltdown. But if the banks do get into trouble, the state is there to bail them out, as it did in the crash of 2007-2008. Some are calling for the breakup of the big banks. That will be a tough task as the state finance nexus is so tight, but it is an issue that must be addressed. There's also an alternative model, publicly owned banks, as in the case of North Dakota. Our guest today is David Harvey, Distinguished Professor of Anthropology and Geography at the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. He's the author of many books, including A Brief History of Neoliberalism, The Limits to Capital, and The Ways of the World. He's among the top 20 most cited authors in the humanities and is the world's most cited academic geographer. He spoke in Chicago at the Socialism 2019 conference in early July. And now, David Harvey. Um, which position would you rather be in? Having a 10% rate of return on $100 or a 3% rate of return on a million dollars? Which would you choose? Okay. You don't necessarily go for the highest rate, right? Because of the mass. So there's an interesting kind of question here, the rate and the mass. And actually the fact that the lower 10% were proportionately better off is in fact a, com a commentary on how unwealthy they are to start with. And, but there's no interesting kind of comment on that. So then, then the, the, the suggestion that we should actually think about rates rather than masses becomes rather politically significant. Economists talk about rates all the time. They rarely talk about masses. They'll talk about, well, we've got to raise the rate of growth, we've got to raise the rate of productivity, we've got to raise the rate of this or the rate of that. And so the problems of organization of the mass get ignored because everybody's concentrating on rates. And there are areas of this kind where it seems to me that we have real serious difficulties. Uh, for instance, on the question of climate change, people want to change the rate of carbon emissions. The problem right now is all the, the, the greenhouse gases that are already up there. That's what's melting the you know, Greenland ice cap and Antarctica and all the rest of it. It's the mass that's already there, and we should therefore pay much more attention uh, to the mass. Now this actually turns out uh, many things I suddenly started to look at and I kind of sort of started to read the, the data in terms of this rates and masses kind of thing and you find a, a completely different picture of all sorts of things comes out but this also carries over into into Marx and Marx's understandings 
For instance, Marx wrote about the falling rate of profit. There are loads of uh, studies of the falling rate of profit. You'll see them all over the place. But you don't see any studies of the rising mass. And isn't the rising mass rather important? Actually, it turns out that Marx thought the rising mass was very, very significant. So that in those chapters in volume three of Capital, where Marx talks about the falling rate of profit, those three chapters were actually designed by Engels, not by Marx. There's only one chapter about the falling rate of profit. And it starts out by explaining why the profit rate is going to fall, because capitalists are interested in labor-saving innovations, and if labor is interested in, if labor is the source of all value, then you're obviously saving on the item, on, on that aspect of the production process that's producing the value, so over time you're going to get uh, a falling rate of profit. And so Marx writes about it in the following way. He kind of says, he starts off by kind of doing this, by saying, the progressive tendency for the general rate of profit to fall is simply the expression, peculiar to the capitalist mode of production, of the progressive development of the social productivity of labor. Engels then cut the chapter and said, okay, that's the falling rate of profit. Now we have two other chapters he designed. One's called countervailing influences and the other's called contradictions within the law. It's impossible to justify those titles from the original text because the original text flows on from the falling rate of profit to say within a few other pages, Marx says this, despite the enormous decline in the general rate of profit, the number of workers employed by capital, i.e. the absolute mass of labor set in motion, can therefore grow and progressively so, despite the progressive fall in the rate of profit. And he then goes on to say this not only can but must be the case. The same laws, therefore, produce both a growing absolute mass of profit, which the social capital appropriates, and a falling rate of profit. And then Marx asks the key question in the chapter, which is, how then should we present this double-edged law of a decline in the rate of profit coupled with a simultaneous increase in the absolute mass of profit arising from the same causes? Now you kind of say, well, how does it arise from the same causes? Well, if you go back into volume one of Capital, there's a chapter on rate and mass. And in it, Marx asks the question, what's the capitalist more interested in? The rate or the mass? Well, no, it's the mass they want. And they want to improve and enhance their mass. Now they can do it two ways. One is they can improve the rate, they can raise the rate of exploitation on labor. The other is to employ more laborers, which then gives you the mass in a different way. And you have that choice. So the thirst for sur you know, the werewolf thirst for surplus value actually gets the capitalist to do both things, to increase the rate of exploitation and, at the same time, to increase the number of laborers who are employed. So this is, if you like, what Marx does with this. Uh, and the interesting thing is that most Marxists have not paid attention to the fact that this is a double-edged law and that the rise in the mass of surplus capital is actually something which is problematic and poses all kinds of problems. And as you go on through this chapter, you find Marx introducing many of these uh, questions. Uh, one of them, for example, is the whole way in which uh, the rising mass means that there's going to be a rising mass of product which has to be absorbed in the market, there's a rising mass of extraction that has to go on in terms of the relation, the metabolic relation to nature. So that many of the problems that we want to talk about 
uh, are in fact d about how to deal with the mass, not with the right. And this mass then becomes the center of a whole set of, uh, of serious problems. So this question starts to actually then promote, provoke uh, all sorts of other, other issues. For example, Marx kind of says, capitalists in their, in their thirst, they, they, they raise the rate of surplus value uh, production, uh, both by increasing, increasing labor and also increasing rate of exploitation. They raise, they raise the surplus value they control. And because they raise the surplus they control, uh, they then start to use that surplus in very, very, very clear ways. Now, conventional economic uh, theories concentrate very much on rates and very little on the mass. But just to give you a sense of this, when I was 15 in 1950, the total output of goods and services in the world economy was just above $4 trillion, $1990, according to Brad DeLong, who's done some measurements on all of this. Okay, so just above $4 trillion. By the time you get to 2000, when I was supposed to retire but forgot to, <laughs> uh, it, it, it had come to $40 trillion. Now it's close to $80 trillion. It's been doubling every 25 years. Now you've got to find new investment opportunities for $40 trillion and now $80 trillion, and in by 2050 we've been talking about 100, and, uh, 100 and, okay, you're on, you're on exponential increase. Now, there's greater and greater problems of absorbing the mass. And so actually in this chapter on the falling rate of profit, Marx suddenly gets into sort of saying, uh, oh, uh, there are serious problems uh, of absorption of the mass. There are, in fact, what he calls realization crises. That capital produces more, but it can't find the market. So where is it going to find the market? And then also, it not only needs the market, where can it find the new places to extract raw materials from? And so Marx talks about this and then kind of says, well, actually, for the Brits, there was no problem about that because they had India. And India functioned in the following way. You destroyed the Indian handicraft textile industry and you sold all of your cotton goods from Lancashire to, to the Indians. But they had to buy something in return or, or furnish something in return. So hemp, jute, cotton, all those kinds of things. But it wasn't enough. So what did the Brits do? They kind of said, well, okay, India, why don't you grow opium and we'll sell opium to the Chinese. And they sent the British Navy in to open up China violently. Can you imagine doing that, by the way? Sending your Navy in to actually create a drug colony in China. And China paid for the opium with silver, and the silver went back to India, and then India went back to London. So this was a kind of neat, neat, kind, neat kind of system of dealing with the realization problem in this case. But now that you ask the question, all right, how can we actually do this? For the, this was being done with a relatively small amount of total output at that time. How can we do it now? Where, where is the India today? Okay, because China's already been brought in and all of these other kind of uh, things. So we've got this real serious problem of absorption of the increasing mass. And along with that, there comes this whole kind of uh, increase in, in, the, in the use values which need to be absorbed. Uh, and, and how are they going to be absorbed? Well, uh, okay, there's been a, a mass absorption of some new use values since the crisis of 2007-2008. So let's look just briefly at what, what happened. In 2007-2008, the market crashed in, in the United States. 
Now, the big problem then was, if the market crashes in the United States, where is China going to sell all its goods to? So there's mass unemployment in China. Uh, some people kind of estimate that something like China lost 30 million jobs in the crash of 2007-2008. But within one or two years, China had actually ended up with a net job loss, according to the IMF and the ILO, of only 3 million. So it means that China managed to create 27 million jobs in one year. How did it do it? Well, it had already launched on this huge expansion of uh, urbanization, of building new cities, building new, tech, tech, you know, new transport systems. In 2008, China had zero miles of high-speed rail network. By the 10 years later, it had 20,000 miles. It built 20,000 miles of high-speed in 10 years. I mean, it's, it's astonishing performance. But what did that mean? in terms of absorption of raw materials, but also it was a creation of a market through what Marx called productive consumption, not final consumption, productive consumption. And the productive consumption uh, was this building of new infrastructures, building of whole cities, waiting for, uh, if you like, uh, a population to arrive. So you have the ghost cities, the new cities with no populations in them. Uh, for, for uh, at least for a while until the migrant populations from, this, from uh, the, the rural areas uh, flood in. Now, one of the consequences of this was a huge increase, of course, in, in, in consumerism of this productive consumption type. And now, if I had a thing here, I'd show you this, this incredible graph of cement uh, utilization in China between, in effect, China, in two years, consumed 45% more cement than the United States consumed in 100 years. And as you know, in the United States, we've consumed a lot of cement. But the, the, the graph of, of Chinese cement consumption just soars. Now, you immediately kind of say, what are the environmental consequences of this? And oh, by the way, making cement is pretty dirty business and actually creates a lot of greenhouse gases. So suddenly you see this huge increase in greenhouse, greenhouse gas emissions in China. Uh, along with a big question of, okay, you're building all of these cities, who's going uh, to buy all the stuff? So one of the things the Chinese introduced, and they'd already introduced it, uh, was, was a mortgage market. So suddenly, uh, indebtedness in China also floods up in a huge rate. So you, actually the rate of greenhouse gas emissions and indebtedness goes parallel. The cement consumption goes up. Uh, not only cement, but, but copper, steel, all this kind of stuff. So all of the graphs of international output uh, put China soaring, absolutely soaring. And here we have, since 2007, 2008, China has provided more growth than Europe, North America, and Japan combined. Now, this is a, this is a, this is a phenomenal thing. But, of course, it's doing something in terms of greenhouse gas emissions and all the rest of it. So we've now got this in very interesting graph, which I came across the other day and it blew my mind. I'm not, I'm not prone to apocalyptic thinking about the environmental question. I think the environmental question is very serious, but I sometimes get concerned about, you know, the apocalyptic, the world's coming to an end, you know, blah, blah, blah. But actually, some, there's a graph that Noah's just put out of, of greenhouse gas levels over the last 800,000 years. And at no point in 800,000 years did the, the carbon dioxide concentrations go above 300 parts per million. Except in the last 10 years, when they've gone from 300 to 400 parts per million. 
Now that's scary stuff, really scary, scary stuff. So that says there's already up there enough mass of greenhouse gas emissions that if, it is not, if something is not done with it, and it's no longer about curbing you know, new greenhouse gas, it's about getting the carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere and back into the ground. How are you going to do that? Well, there are some agricultural techniques and forestation and so on. It can be massive global effort to try to get that stuff down because if it's not brought down, essentially we'll all be frying in another 50 years and, and all the water will be gone from the Himalayas and all the water will be gone from, from, from Greenland ice cap and all the rest of it. So this is, a, this is the kind of situation where you start to see these mass relations. So there's a massive increase in the total use values which are out there. There's a massive increase in greenhouse gas, a massive and at the same time, there's a big, big question as to how on earth you're going to sustain the market over time. And, and how are we going to sustain consumerism when, in fact, at the same time, as Marx points out, you've got this other contradiction that according to the Volume 1 analysis of capital, what, what capital is going to do is constantly restrict the purchasing power of the working classes because that is where your profit's coming from. So here's another contradiction. You restrict the worth purchasing power of the working classes and more and more of the population is living on less and less in terms of use values, and you're making more and more and more use values. How do you, how do you square that, 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 that particular circle? Now, at this point, you have to start to argue about exactly what is, what, what is going on here in terms of the, the, the central contradictions. In that chapter in Volume 1 about rates and mass, Marx identifies two contradictions. The first contradiction is the, the, the fact that you want to expand your surplus value but you're going to reduce the, the labor force by technological innovations. That's the first one. The second one is the problem that you have certain uh, industries which are capital intensive, which have employed very little labor, but they clearly get exactly the same amount of profit as those industries that, produce, uh, that consume a lot of labor. So what is going on with this contradiction? And Marx mentions it in Volume 1, and of course in Volume 3 he then comes back to it and says, well, what goes on is something called the equalization of the rate of profit. And the equalization of the rate of profit in, in a situation of market, free market competition produces a very peculiar result. Marx calls it capitalist communism. Because the principle is from each according to the labor that they employ to each according to the capital they advance. What this means is that there's a constant subsidy through the free market to capital-intensive industries from labor-intensive industries. That there's a transfer of value going on through the market process. It's not forced or something like that. It arises out of the equalization of the rate of profit. So Marx starts talking about the equalization of the rate of profit. And I think what he's doing is to say, essentially, the free market, when it engages in the equalization of the rate of profit, uh, actually uh, is an unfair market. Now, contemporary economics views any kind of problem in the market as, as essentially coming from uh, some sort of uh, uh, defect in, in the market process. And therefore the neoclassical thing is try to get the market to work as perfectly as well as you can and everything will be okay. What Marx shows is exactly the opposite. The more the market is working well, particularly if it's engaging in the equalization of the rate of profit, then that, what that means is there's more and more transfer 
of value going from labor-intensive industries and parts of the world to capital-intensive <coughs> industries. So if you're smart, you're not going to go for labor-intensive industries because you're simply going to be you know, uh, subsidizing uh, the, the capital-intensive industries. And if you put a low-productivity economy in like, like Greece into the euro, what that means is you're going to actually transfer value from, from Greece to Germany. That'll surprise the Germans when you say you're being subsidized by the Greeks. Because they think the Greeks are filching money from them because, you know, all the rest of it. So, but in fact, that's, what, that's exactly what happens. So if you're smart, you don't do that. Now, the one case which is very smart was, of course, Singapore. Because when Singapore was cast loose from Malaysia, it had to do something about make its own economy. What did it do? It said it wasn't going to do what Hong Kong did, which is go for labor-intensive industries. It was going to go for capital-intensive industries from the very get-go. And look what happened to Singapore. It did extremely well. So this means that actually there are these value transfers going on through the equalization of the rate of profit. Now, here's an interesting kind of question. Under what conditions is there going to be an equalization of the rate of profit? When Marx was writing, it was very difficult to equalize the rate of profit. Because of high transport costs and all kinds of barriers to trade, it meant that the equalization of the rate of profit was, you know, for many sectors of the economy, was impossible. And that therefore there was going to be a great deal of difference between the rate of profit in the United States and the rate of profit in, in Britain and everywhere else. Now, as transport and communications have become cheaper and cheaper and cheaper, so in fact it's become more and more possible to equalize the rate of profit. But there was a big difficulty uh, from 1945 onwards under the Bretton Woods Agreement because Bretton Woods Agreement actually Im implemented capital controls. That is, you couldn't transfer capital easily from one part of the world to the other. The Bretton Woods Agreement was about actually limiting the capacity to equalize the rate of profit. Now, if you want to equalize the rate of profit, then you're going to have to have capital in a very mobile form. What's the most mobile form of capital? It's not production, it's not commodities, it's money. So you've got to liberate money. So actually the whole kind of revolution that occurred in the 1970s of the opening up of markets and the abolition of capital controls the U.S. went off capital controls on August 15, 1971, when it abandoned the gold standard and, and implemented an open market. And then it used its monopsony power globally to force everybody else to abandon capital controls. Margaret Thatcher obliged in 1982. And step by step, capital controls were dismantled. You've now got a situation of, uh, where capital controls have disappeared apart from the one place where they recognize if you, if you get rid of capital controls, you're in trouble, which is China. China was supposed to you know, get rid of capital controls when it joined the WTO, but it was given a period of time and it keeps on saying, well, you know, we try and then we can't. But when I was in China, one thing as I was saying to them, the last thing in the world you want to do is actually stop, you know, get rid of capital controls. Because what will happen to you in China is what happened to Southeast Asia. In 1997-98, you will open yourself up to, to, to a predatory raiding of all of the value and you'll lose it all. And the Chinese know that. And in fact, they actually put it out in military documents that they're not going to release you know, capital controls. But the, re the relaxation and, and, and abolition of capital controls around the world 
uh, from the 1970s onwards opened up the possibility for the equalization of the rate of profit and equalization of the rate of profit produces uh, this transfer of value from labor-intensive to capital-intensive economies. So the last thing in the world you want to do is be a labor-intensive economist. I mean, look at the situation in Bangladesh, for example. There's a labor-intensive And this also explains the whole trajectory that happened in East Asia, which, of course, Japan started with labor-intensive and moved to capital-intensive. Taiwan, South Korea started with, with labor-intensive and moved to capital-intensive. And now China is doing the same. What is China saying? We're moving out of labor-intensive, we're going into capital-intensive, and they're doing it very fast, very quickly. And they said by 2025 we will be a leader in the capital-intensive world of artificial intelligence and all the rest of it. And they are already there. This is the problem now. So what then is the argument of the West? One of the ways in which you can deal with the inequalities that arise out of this market process is, of course, try to redistribute in some way. Now, the European Union, when it was formed, realized it had a regional undevelopment problem and it wanted to help people, so it, it started giving financial aid to all of those lagging regions. Financial aid doesn't help at all. Because you put finance to a region, what do they do? They use it to buy goods and services from the metropoles. And so you just give money out there and then it comes back. So financial aid is no, is no good. So one of the things that the European Union shifted around from giving financial aid, they decided the best thing to do was to support sort of growing regions and hope that the spillover effects would spread out to the peripheries, which of course it never does. There's a sort of trickle out and trickle down, never did. So this is what they're trying to do. Now, the one thing that would make it okay would be to have a level playing field in terms of technological understandings and technologies. That is, get rid of the differentiation between capital-intensive and labor-intensive economies. Because, in effect, even within countries, what we're seeing is an incredible kind of surge of prosperity and development and that in the large metropolitan region areas and all the other areas lagging behind and it's you know so what you've got to do is somehow or other come up with with a technological in, uh, technological equality but what are we doing why is there all this emphasis upon intellectual property rights it's all about protecting the monopoly power of the capital-intensive economies because they're sucking value out of the labor-intensive economies. What is China saying it's going to do? It's going to become a, a capital-intensive economy? Stop them. I mean, this is what Trump's doing, right? Stop them. Stop them under all circumstances. Blame them for thieving, you know, thieving. I'm glad the Chinese are stealing all of that technology. <laughs> Technology, technology is, is part of the global commons and should be part of the global commons. It should be equal to everybody. <laughs> putting, putting, putting intellectual property rights on knowledge is, it seems to me, the one thing that, that the United States is leading right now. And of course, it's just daft things so that, you know, I, I, I was traveling around and I needed to get one of my own papers, so I went on the web and I, and I was... They wanted me to pay 25 pounds for my own paper. <laughs> I mean, but, but this, is, this, is, this is what I mean by this system, which is, which is becoming pervasive everywhere, and everybody's you know, trying to protect their positionality. 
So there's that technological inequality which starts to be very, very significant. And it, it, it's not only technological, it's also people possibilities. And these people possibilities uh, are about taking talented and, and, and actually you look at the whole structure of the research universities and t higher education and, and the support of higher education by corporations and big business and the production of new knowledges and all those kinds of things. And you start to see an incredible kind of system of elite bias. And that elite bias is backed by this equalization of the rate of profit, which is going to transfer the value. So what the United States is trying to do by stopping China and its technological capacities right now is to actually try to maintain a situation where it will be supported by those labor-intensive economies. And of course, we're beginning to see this happening with Vietnam and Cambodia and, and the like. You're listening to David Harvey, The State Finance Nexus. This is Independent Alternative Radio. You can order copies of this program by calling 1-800-444-1977. That's 1-800-444-1977. Or you can order online on our website, alternativeradio.org. That's alternativeradio.org. So... This is a kind of world in which we are, we're, we're beginning to construct. And it's actually then got into a position where the capitalist class is in a situation where it can extract value from all parts of the system. Uh, Matt Taby um, had this wonderful image of Goldman Sachs, you know, the vampire uh, squid with its tentacles all around the world. Now, I don't think this is only Goldman Sachs. This is, in fact, about the whole capitalist class. They have their tentacles almost everywhere. If they can suck it out of, of production, they'll get it out of production. If they'll suck it out through realization, they'll do it there. This is what the pharmaceutical products do. They do it both ways. Almost all your pharmaceutical products, by the way, are made in China now. <laughs> If China goes on the blink, then they'll all be empty of, of drugs and vitamins and God knows what. So, but what Big Pharma does is to put pressure on the direct producers. So the direct producers get almost nothing. And this is true of Apple computers and everything else. You know, Foxconn has pressure on it. Apple, the, you know, their profits are not good enough, so they go to Foxconn and say, squeeze your labor harder. Squeeze them harder, squeeze them harder, squeeze them harder. So there's monopsony power, so that all of these organizations like Apple and Walmart and all the rest of it are in there sort of forcing the direct producers to actually receive almost nothing for what they do. And then the value is produced in China and it's appropriated in the United States and it's monetized in the United States. So again, there's a transfer of value going on in all of this. And that transfer of value is towards the rewarding again the capital intensive the the the, the, the knowledge producers and 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 the like and so what we could be beginning to see is a monopoly emerging in the knowledge based industries and the knowledge structures which are connected to again this technological advantage and the technological advantage is then the basis uh, for the actually extraction of value so you can extract value but the pharmaceuticals don't only do it at the point of production 
this guy, what's his name, Shekel or something like that, who bought the, 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 the pharmaceutical company, that sold a pill for, I don't know what it was, $7.50, and then he remarketed it for, I don't know, $750 a pill. Uh, actually, most people who needed a book didn't pay for it. The insurance companies paid for it, uh, and the result of that was... So, so this, this monopoly pricing that goes on and, farm, and, and in the drug trade, those prices have gone up by about 25% over the last, I don't know, five, seven or eight years. So you get monopoly pricing at the front, so that you steal at the point of production, you steal at the, at the, uh, at the point of realisation, these are the sorts of issues that, 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 that come up uh, uh, immediately. But then this question arises then of the mass and, and, and how the mass is increasing, but then there's access to the mass. Uh, just to give you an example. In 1992, George Soros looked at what was going on with the British pound in relationship to the exchange rate mechanism in the European Union. And it was clear that the pound was really... Uh, overvalued relative to where it should be. So he, he borrowed a lot of pounds, a billion he borrowed. I'd like to borrow a billion, wouldn't you? <laughs> he borrowed a billion pounds and he bet against the pound. He turned them into Deutschmarks. And the pound got into difficulty and other people started to do the same thing, got into difficulty. Very soon they raised the interest rate from something like 11 to 17% to try to protect the pound. They ran out of foreign exchange reserves and then they said, okay, we're lost. We've got to get out. We've got to devalue the pound. They devalued the pound, but two days before they devalued the pound, George Bar Soros borrowed another $14 billion. I'd like to borrow that too. Yeah. And immediately after it's devalued, he takes the $15 billion he's got now in Deutschmarks, turns them back into pounds at a, high, a better rate. He pays off all the people he's borrowed from, and he walks away with nobody knows exactly how much, maybe the order of a billion or maybe two or maybe $3 billion and he did it in three days' work. I mean, I tell students this, and they say, how can I get there, you know? And, so <laughs> and you kind of go, well, actually, the hedge funds are doing this kind of thing all of the time. Now, they're not producing any value. I mean, Soros effectively legally robbed the British people of seven billion pounds, or something of that sort. And this is, this is legal, and it's going on all the time. Well, they, this is what they did to you know, Thailand, and this is what they did in 1997-98. You just go in, and you, you raid, and you, you, you suck the value out. I mean, this is the vampire squid, you know, sort of sucking it out from all over the place, all over the world. And the Chinese look at this, and they, they actually articulate this, and they looked and saw what happened in Southeast Asia, and they said, we're not going to let that happen to us. So one of the things we do is to protect ourselves by what? by actually cultivating the fact that we own so much in the way of U.S. Treasuries that if we sell our U.S. Treasuries, the U.S. is <laughs> And they've got it. And they've got it right, I think. You know, and there are a lot of problems about China. I'm not, I'm not saying the Chinese are great or anything like that, but there's a situation arising here which I think is absolutely critical. So the mass then becomes significant, and it's access to the mass. And if you have access to the mass, you can get more mass. And it was interesting, the Financial Times had a great little cartoon, it's a, sort of a couple sitting in front of the fire, you know, they had a little conversation, and, 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 and the woman has a newspaper, and it says, you know, tax cuts are coming for the rich. And she said, you know, I wish we were rich, because then we'd be richer. <laughs> and that's, that's actually what the capitalist class is about now. They're just about being rich and being richer. And if you look at what Trump's tax reform was, it was about 
making them richer. And they can get rich and richer by doing things like having access to the mass and being able to do the kinds of things they're being able to do. And this then raises the kind of question of exactly how we're going to approach questions of social inequality. I mean, people talk about this, but actually we've got to deal with the mechanism by which the rich are getting richer. And they are getting richer like crazy. And part of it is coming out of this equalization of the rate of profit. Look at the impact on social inequalities. And, 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 and then I go back to that Bank of England uh, kind of uh, report, which, which kind of says, you know, this absolute amount is increasing and the mass is getting larger. Now, it, it's interesting when you look at this and say, all right, well, what does this mean politically? And actually, it's been interesting to me in this conference on almost every session I've been in, somebody at some point or other has said, well, it's the working mass. Where's the working mass? And how do we actually start to think about you know, mobilizing the mass, organizing the mass? Because that's the only way in which actually this can be, can, can be looked at. The difficulty here is this, that the number of people now employed as wage workers has increased enormously by at least one billion since, uh, since 1980. So there's now about three billion wage workers in the world. But only a small minority of that is actually value-producing. A lot of it is necessary, you know, costs of circulation and the like, but a lot of it is socially unnecessary labor. And a lot of it is dealing with the mechanics of expropriation. The vampire squid doesn't actually live on its own. It's got a great deal of, you know, so, so there is then this kind of, kind of question of how and, and in what ways is that mass likely to contain within it elements which are capable of disrupting the whole system. And we've seen a lot of strike activity, but what I would like to do is to end up with this kind of, kind of brief, very brief comment on where do we have the, the, the real possibility to close this system down. I mean, a teacher's strike doesn't do it. There are some other things, like the care industry, where going on strike is, would be catastrophic for, the, for so those people being cared for. So there are many areas where labor actions of that kind, while you know, they, can, they can try to improve their own conditions, it's not as if labor action is actually going to tear the whole thing down. Now, there are two kind of areas, I think, where this is not the case. Firstly, I think labor organizing in China is critical because there, indeed, if China stopped producing pharmaceutical goods, if it stopped producing all of the things it's producing, you wouldn't have your Apple computers and you wouldn't have your, you know, all of those, all those sorts of things. So the China labor situation is, is critical. We know that there's class struggle all over the place. The way I would look at it right now is you have in China a class in itself and it hasn't quite become a class for itself. If it becomes a class for itself, then you're going to see something which is really radically different. The Chinese are very clever about this. They do not care for horizontal forms of political organization. They actually uh, contain a lot of the class struggle in local situations and, 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 and localities. So a lot of the class struggle is actually bottled up in, in, in local things. So there's a, there's a lot of 
kind of questions of class organization, class struggle in China, and what the position of the Communist Party is likely to be. But this is one of the key areas, and I think it's one of the key areas in terms of the future of, of everyone, because you go back to things like what's happening with the greenhouse gases, what's happening with cement, what's happening with all those sorts of things, and, and at the same time there's the class issue in China. So I think what's ha happening in China is going to be pretty determinative in terms of what the global situation is going to be over, over the next 30 or 40 years. That's the first thing. But the second thing is, you know, in this country uh, we don't have too many levers, but there is actually uh, a way in which we can start to, to think about this. I found it very significant that when Trump closed the federal government down, it was gone down for, I don't know what it was, 30 days or something like that. Uh, the, the day before he changed his mind, something very significant happened. That is, three airports in the United States suddenly couldn't function. Now, now if you look at this, and, and it's very interesting, what's the labor force? look like at an airport. You'll see a lot of people of color, particularly African-Americans. You'll see a lot of Hispanics. And you'll see a lot of waged women. That's the core of our contemporary working class. And if it goes on strike and you close down six airports in the United States, capitalism is dead. And it's interesting when you look at this. You remember when that volcanoes set off in Iceland and you couldn't travel the Atlantic. It was phenomenal kind of loss. <clears throat> I always remember after 9-11, you know, everybody was sitting around, nobody was doing anything. Suddenly, uh, you know, Giuliani comes on the TV, Bush came on the TV and said, get back, start consuming. Because <laughs> if you don't, then actually the, the, the economy will collapse. And so there is, a, uh, there is a source of power here, and it li really lies in the logistics sector. Let's organize the airports, and then say to, you know, powers that be, either you do this, or we're going to close the whole damn country down. And it's all very well to say, okay, like Reagan did with the air traffic controllers, we'll send the military in. <coughs> well, you might do that with the air traffic controllers, but you're going to put the military in as baggage handlers, and, you know, all the rest of it? No way. <laughs> Besides, look at the huge labor force now, the mass, and the mass of traffic that's involved. This would be very good for the environment, by the way, because if you don't fly those planes around for, you know, three weeks, it'll be a great relief in terms of greenhouse gas emissions. So there are strategic possibilities. And I think one of the things we've got to do is to recognize what those strategic possibilities are and then set about thinking of ways in which the mass of the workers, and you, you're going to need not just simply the mass, but you're going to need a strategic element within that mass that has the power to close something down and to stop something. And stopping capital right now seems to me to be the real objective of what we're about. That is, the, the end point of socialism, surely, is the abolition of the capitalist class. And, 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 the and the destruction of its power base. Now, this sounds like an outrageous thing to say or suggest, but I think it's important we say it, 
because in the past this sort of thing has happened. After 1945, in many parts of the world, capitalist developmentalism was hindered by the existence of elite classes of landowners. So what happened? The Institute Land Reform. And land reform is about expropriating the large estates, the latifundias and all those kinds of things, and distributing those those means of production to the mass of the population. So in fact, there was a mass dispossession of a certain class through land reform. Now if we could abolish the capitalist class and take all their wealth and redistribute in society in general, that's a very good socialist aim, right? That's, that's, where we sh that's, where we sh that's what we should be thinking. Now, when, I, when I, I, I say this, I know that this is something that's clearly impossible. But on the other hand, to have it in mind that that is what we're trying to get to. And it's only if we get to that point and we start actually to deal with some of the mechanisms which are out there, including all of this intellectual property rights and all those sorts of things, that the path towards that starts to talk about a kind of socialist strategy which is to the boards the building of an alternative society in which there is a lot more decommodification going on, a lot more concern with actually organizing agriculture and agricultural production to extract greenhouse gases out of the atmosphere as fast as we can. We have a whole bunch of things of that kind that can be sort of slotted in. But unless we have the imaginary that we're going to abolish that class power and the way that class power is being used politically, because it is not true that Donald Trump is not a neoliberal. He is a neoliberal in some ways, very much part of that project. And I think the attack on China is an attack upon maintaining the privileges of uh, a certain kind of class formation, which rests on knowledge production and, and the like. So this is what comes out, it seems to me, when you start to think about the relationship between rates and masses. And I would therefore suggest that you have that in mind when you're reading the news and reading the data. And when somebody starts to tell you that, you know, the rate of this is doing that, and that's great, isn't it? And you kind of say, well, yeah, okay, well, what's the mass? And how much mass is involved here? Uh, and is this a, a proper way to read uh, where we are in the capitalist economy right now? So why don't I re leave it there, and we can discuss some of these questions. Uh, Chinese activity, one of the concepts I use a lot is the notion of a spatial fix. That is when a country runs out of internal possibilities, it starts to seek out uh, opportunities to invest capital abroad. Japan started to do it in the 1960s. By the time you get to the end of the 1970s, South Korea is doing it. Taiwan did it in about 1982 or 83, and now China is doing it. And so I think that the whole Belt and Road China has huge surplus productive capacity. Not only does it have surplus money, it's got surplus uh, productive capacity in steel and cement production, for example. So what do you do? You go off and you sort of say to East African countries, uh, do this, uh, you know, we'll build you a railroad, we'll lend you the money to build the railroad which will use our equipment. But, the, you know, this is what the British did to Argentina back in the uh, 19th century. Uh, it's a sort of a spatial fix and of course what it does is it uh, completely disrupts the, the economies of those regions 
uh, sometimes for the better, sometimes for the worse. So one of the things that, of course, China is involved in is land grabbing in Africa and, 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 and the like. But they're very conscious also of the actual physical control over resources which become uh, essential, to, in their view, to assure their future. The question of the state, there was a very interesting kind of session on the state. One of the things I felt was maybe a bit lacking was I think that it's a bad idea to have the state as a monolithic organization. I think it's an ecosystem in which there are some parts of it that as a socialist I would want to maintain. I don't, I'd like the sewers to work and things like that, you know, and the sewage plants to, to do the job and so on. So there are aspects of the state that it seems to me that you would, you would want to preserve. The key thing for me, however, is the, the big significance of who manages the mass of capital and how is it being managed. And my answer to that is I think there's something which I would call the state finance nexus. The state is not alone, it's the state and finance together. And if you go back to what happened in 2007-2008, the decision about Lehman Brothers, let it go, who made the decision and what did they do afterwards? The two who made it were Bernanke as head of the Federal Reserve, which is the head of the banking system, and Paulson, Secretary of the Treasury. Secretary of the Treasury, Federal Reserve, put them together, and you've got what I call the state finance nexus, which manages the whole damn system. And they do it collaboratively with other central banks and other treasury departments. They also do it through multinational institutions like the IMF and the Bank of International Settlements. They've also got a cadre of international lawyers who are kind of litigating in the WTO and all of that. So there is a state finance nexus there, which is absolutely crucial. And, and the decision to, to send Lehman into bankruptcy was, I think, a very in, interesting one when you go and you dissect exactly what was going on. I don't have time to do that here, but in effect, Paulson and, and Bernanke and Geithner, between them, they were the ones who decided. And then, I don't know if you remember, but three days later, after the crash, Paulson moved from being seen as a kind of crony of Wall Street since he came from Goldman Sachs and that he was therefore a corrupt kind of administrator to being part of the committee that saved the world. Uh, three days later, when they produced a three-page document, they said, this is what we do, we bail out the banks. Absolutely. And this allowed, the, the crisis of Lehman allowed Paulson to push the, the bailing out of the banks at the expense of all of the people who are going to be foreclosed upon. And, of course, the foreclosed people then sort of lost all their houses. What's happened to all those houses? Well, Blackstone bought them up from all of the, 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 the banks and, and is, in fact, now Blackstone is the biggest sort of property owner in the world. And I think in this country it holds about uh, 200,000 properties or something like that. This is a huge transfer of wealth because large segments of the population lost about 70 or 80 percent of their asset values and where did it go? It's gone into Blackstone's pocket and oh by the way what's happened to Schwartzman? What did he do? He gave 350 million dollars to MIT and another 150,000 pounds to Oxford University. This is the elite building the elite, building the knowledge factories, controlling all of the you know so this is, this is the way in which the capitalist class is operating right now. And so you have to understand that. And, and there's a question of who runs the state and in whose interest is it going. And I always remember the, the famous line of, of Clinton, you know, he came to power and Robert Rubin told him he had to do what the bondholders wanted. 
So Clinton came in prom promising universal health care. What did he give us? NAFTA. He gave us reform of the welfare system. He gave us the catastrophic criminal justice reforms. He, he gave us uh, the getting rid of Glass-Steagall. I mean, you know, Clinton was a complete uh, sort of... And, 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 and if you ask somebody in... <laughs> if, you, if, you ask, if you ask somebody in Greece... Does the state really manage Greece? The answer is no, the Troika manages Greece, you know. And, and every time the state does something, and, and half the governments in Europe at a certain point were being appointed by the financiers, and the, so it's the bondholders and the state. Now this goes back to the formation of the Bank of England in 1694. Bankers were sitting there and the state ran out of money and they turned to the bankers and said, give us some money, we need it, and the banker said no. And then in the end there was a negotiation set up and the banker said, okay, charter us a bank called the Bank of England. We will become stockholders of that bank and give us, by the way, the powers of issue of fiat money and all the rest of it. So in fact you get this state finance nexus which is built in 1694 and it becomes the model for how capital is going to manage the mass. Because they need to manage it, they're plundering it at the same time as they've got to manage it. So they're plundering it one minute and then they turn around to them and then they kind of say, all right, Paulson and Bernanke, bail us out. That's what's going on. So it's not just simply the state. It's the state finance nexus, and the state is not independent of finance. What about the material conditions and, and all the rest of it? Well, um, material conditions are, of course, constantly changing. The technological capacities right now are radically different from when Marx was writing. I think artificial intelligence, I'd like to see a communist world in which artificial intelligence takes care of all necessities, and we can do what the hell we like. Something I haven't encountered in this conference, which I do in most conferences, because most of the left in this country is sort of given over to what I might call a kind of non-ideological cultural anarchism. And that is a very interesting, because I, I, I actually like the anarchists, you know. <laughs> and Henri Lefebvre had a wonderful kind of statement. So when somebody asked Lefebvre, he said, why are you a Marxist and not an anarchist? And his answer was, I'm a Marxist, so one day we can all live like anarchists. <laughs> and I, and I, think, I think that's a fantastic vision, you know. That was David Harvey, the state finance nexus. He spoke in early July in Chicago at the Socialism 2019 conference. David Harvey, Distinguished professor at the City University of New York is the author of many books, including Spaces of Global Capitalism, A Brief History of Neoliberalism, and The Ways of the World. He's among the top 20 most cited authors in the humanities and is the world's most cited academic geographer. This program is produced by Alternative Radio based in Boulder, Colorado. Now in its 34th year, we are independent and part of the nonprofit organization Rise Up. We are supported solely by individuals just like you. Every week, we feature progressive voices rarely heard in the corporate media, such as Michael Yates, Dar Jamel, Shoshana Zuboff, Noam Chomsky, Winona LaDuc, Ralph Nader, Bill McKibben, Nader Hashemi, and Nancy McLean. To access our complete audio and book catalog, just go to our website, alternativeradio.org. Again, our website where we are podcasting, alternativeradio.org.
www.cdcredit.org. To place a credit card order for CDs, MP3s, or written transcripts of today's program, David Harvey, the State Finance Nexus, just give us a call at 1-800-444-1977. Again, that number is one 800 or you can go on our website, alternativeradio.org. Series theme music is performed by the Kronos Quartet from Pieces of Africa. Joe Ritchie is our general manager and editor. I'm David Barsamian. Thank you for listening. What is it? CJSW. This is Crispin Glover. You are listening to CJSW 90.9 FM. Thank you. Thank you. One more. Thank you. Good morning, good afternoon, welcome to Synthesis. My name is Andy, and you are locked in to CGSW 90.9 FM. We start off this week with Lydia Lunch. That was her track, Atomic Bongos. I absolutely love the kind of 70s, 80s no-wave scene in New York, and Lydia Lunch is one of the best of them. She's absolutely fantastic. She's still mu- making music 
currently. And yeah, I don't know. I love her. Uh, coming up next, we got some Annika. You may recognize her voice from her work as the lead vocalist in Exploded View. But this is her solo project, which I don't know. I like both of them, but I think I might prefer this. Anyway, I'll leave it up to you. Here she is with her track In the City here on CJSW 90.9 FM. <laughs> 